Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a special episode of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, brought to you in collaboration with London's South Bank Centre. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, co-host of the TLS podcast. When I heard that Ted Hodgkinson, senior programmer for literature and spoken word at the South Bank Centre, was organising a full live reading to mark 70 years since the publication of Primo Levi's powerful account of Auschwitz, If This Is a Man, I knew I wanted to support it and help to spread the word. So what you're listening to here is the first episode in a five-part recording of that extraordinary event, which took place in the Royal Festival Hall on April 30th. You'll find all the episodes in this series on the TLS website, the-tls.co.uk, and more recordings from the South Bank Centre, as well as details of forthcoming events in their Belief and Beyond Belief Festival, exploring what it means to be a human, on the South Bank Centre website. The TLS's regular weekly show, Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, continues as usual, so do subscribe on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's over to the South Bank Centre, where Philippe Sands, author human rights lawyer and co-creator of this event begins the reading. He's followed by author and co-creator A.L. Kennedy, the actors Samuel West and Henry Goodman, and the Auschwitz survivor Susan Pollock. The performance was directed by Nina Brazier, with music directed by Tom O'Keller. It was my good fortune to be deported to Auschwitz only in 1944, that is, after the German government had decided owing to the growing scarcity of labour, to lengthen the average lifespan of the prisoners destined for elimination. It conceded noticeable improvements in the camp routine and temporarily suspended killings at the whim of individuals. As an account of atrocities, therefore, this book of mine adds nothing to what is already known to readers throughout the world on the disturbing questions of the death camps. It has not been written in order to formulate new accusations. It should be able, rather, to furnish documentation for a quiet study of certain aspects of the human mind. Many people, many nations can find themselves holding, more or less wittingly, that every stranger is an enemy. For the most part, This conviction lies deep down like some latent infection. It betrays itself only in random, disconnected acts and does not lie at the base of a system of reason. But when this does come about, when the unspoken dogma becomes the major premise 
in a syllogism. Then, at the end of the chain, there is the lager. Here is the product of a conception of the world carried rigorously to its logical conclusion. So long as the conception subsists, the conclusion remains to threaten us. The story of the death camps should be understood by everyone as an alarm signal. I recognize and ask indulgence for the structural defects of the book. Its origins go back, not indeed in practice, but as an idea, an intention to the days in the lager, the need to tell our story to the rest, to make the rest participate in it, have taken on for us before our liberation and after the character of an immediate and violent impulse to the point of competing with our other elementary needs. The book has been written to satisfy this need. First and foremost, therefore, as an interior liberation, hence its fragmentary character. The chapters have been written not in logical succession, but in order of urgency. The work of tightening up is a more studied and more recent. And it seems to me unnecessary to add that none of the facts are invented. Primo Levi. If this is a man, you who live safe in your warm houses, you who find returning in the evening hot food and friendly faces, consider if this is a man who works in the mud, who does not know peace, who fights for a scrap of bread, who dies because of a yes or a no. Consider if this is a woman without hair and without name, with no more strength to remember, her eyes empty and her womb cold like a frog in winter. Meditate that this came about. I commend these words to you. Carve them in your hearts, at home, in the street, going to bed, rising, repeat them to your children, or may your house fall apart, may illness impede you, may your children turn their faces from you. Thank you.
I was captured by the fascist militia on the 13th of December, 1943. I was 24, with little wisdom, no experience, and a decided tendency, encouraged by the life of segregation forced on me for the previous four years by the racial laws, to live in an unrealistic world of my own, a world inhabited by civilized Cartesian phantoms, by sincere male and bloodless female friendships. I cultivated a moderate and abstract sense of rebellion. It had been by no means easy to flee into the mountains and to help set up what, both in my opinion and in that of friends a little more experienced than myself, should have become a partisan band affiliated with the resistance movement, justice and liberty. Contacts, arms, money, and the experience needed to acquire them were all missing. We lacked capable men. And instead, we were swamped by a deluge of outcasts, in good or bad faith, who came from the plain in search of a non-existent military or political organization, of arms, or merely of protection, a hiding place, a fire, a pair of shoes. At that time, I had not yet been taught the doctrine I was later to learn so hurriedly in the lager that man is bound to pursue his own ends by all possible means, while he who errs but once pays dearly. So that I can only consider the following sequence of events justified. Three fascist militia companies, which had set out in the night to surprise a much more powerful and dangerous band than ours, broke into our refuge one spectral snowy dawn and took me down to the valley as a suspect person. During the interrogations that followed, I preferred to admit my status of Italian citizen of Jewish race. I felt that otherwise I would be unable to justify my presence in places too secluded even for an evacuee, while I believed, wrongly as was subsequently seen, that the admission of my political activity would have meant torture and certain death. As a Jew, I was sent to Fossili near Modena, where a vast detention camp, originally meant for English and American prisoners of war, collected all the numerous categories of people not approved of by the newborn fascist republic. At the moment of my arrival, that is, at the end of January 1944, there were about 150 Italian Jews in the camp, but within a few weeks their number rose to over 600. For the most part, they consisted of entire families captured by the fascists or Nazis through their imprudence or following secret accusations. A few had given up themselves up spontaneously, reduced to desperation by the vagabond life, or because they lacked the means to survive, or to avoid separation from a captured relation, or even, absurdly, to be in conformity with the law. There were also about 100 Yugoslavian military internees and a few other foreigners who were politically suspect. The arrival of a squad of German SS men should have made even the optimists doubtful, but we still managed to interpret the novelty in various ways without drawing the most obvious conclusions. Thus, despite everything, the announcement of the deportation caught us all unawares. On the 20th of February, the Germans had inspected the camp with care and had publicly and loudly upbraided the Italian commissar for the defective organization of the kitchen service 
and for the scarce amount of wood distribution for heating. They even said that an infirmary would soon be opened. But on the morning of the 21st, we learned that on the following day, the Jews would be leaving. All the Jews, without exception. Even the children, even the old, even the ill. Our destination? Nobody knew. We should be prepared for a fortnight of travel. For every person missing at the roll call, 10 would be shot. Only a minority of ingenuous and deluded souls continued to hope. We others had often spoken with the Polish and Croat refugees, and we knew what departure meant. For people condemned to death, tradition prescribes an austere ceremony calculated to emphasize that all passions and anger have died down and that the act of justice represents only a sad duty towards society, which moves even the executioner to pity for the victim. Thus, the condemned man is shielded from all external cares. He is granted solitude and, should he want it, spiritual comfort. In short, care is taken that he should feel around him neither hatred nor arbitrariness, only necessity and justice, and by means of punishment, pardon. But to us, this was not granted, for we were many and time was short. And in any case, what had we to repent? For what crime did we need pardon? The Italian Commissar accordingly decreed that all services should continue to function until the final notice. The kitchens remained open, the corvées for cleaning worked as usual, and even the teachers of the little school gave lessons until the evening, as on other days. But that evening the children were given no homework. And night came. And it was such a night that one knew that human eyes would not witness it and survive. Everyone felt this. Not one of the guards, neither Italian nor German, had the courage to come and see what men do when they know they have to die. All took leave from life in the manner which most suited them, some praying, some deliberately drunk, others lustfully intoxicated for the last time. But the mothers stayed up to prepare the food for the journey with tender care and washed their children and packed the luggage. And at dawn, the barbed wire was full of children's washing hung out in the winds to dry. Nor did they forget the diapers, the toys, the cushions, and the hundred other small things which mothers remember and which children always need. Would you not do the same? If you and your child were going to be killed tomorrow, would you not give him to eat today? Dawn came on us like a betrayer. It seemed as though the new sun rose as an ally of our enemies to assist in our destruction. The different emotions that overcame us, of resignation, of futile rebellion, of religious abandon, of fear, of despair, now joined together after a sleepless night in a collective, uncontrolled panic. The time for meditation, the time for decision was over, and all reason dissolved into a tumult 
across which flashed the happy memories of our homes, still so near in time and space, as painful as the thrust of a sword. Many things were then said and done among us, but of these it is better that there remain no memory. With the absurd precision to which we later had to accustom ourselves, the Germans held the roll call. At the end, the officer asked, wie viel Stuck? The corporal saluted smartly and replied that there were 650 pieces and that all was in order. They then loaded us onto the buses and took us to the station of Karpi. Here the train was waiting for us with our escort for the journey. Here we received the first blows and it was so new and senseless that we felt no pain, neither in body nor in spirit, only a profound amazement. How can one hit a man without anger? There were 12 goods wagons for 650 men. In mine, we were only 45, but it was a small wagon. Here then, before our very eyes, under our very feet, was one of those notorious transport trains, those which never return, and of which, shuddering and always a little incredulous, we had so often heard speak. Exactly like this, detail for detail, goods wagons closed from the outside, with men, women, and children pressed together without pity like cheap merchandise for a journey towards nothingness, a journey down there towards the bottom. This time, it is us who are inside. It was the very discomfort, the blows, the cold, the thirst that kept us aloft in the void of bottomless despair, both during the journey and after. It was not the will to live, not a conscious resignation, for few are the men capable of such resolution, and we were but a common sample of humanity. The doors had been closed at once, but the train did not move until evening. We had learnt of our destination with relief, Auschwitz, a name without significance for us at that time, but it at least implied some place on this earth. The train travelled slowly with long, unnerving halts. Through the slit we saw the tall, pale cliffs of the Edige Valley and the names of the last Italian cities disappear behind us. We passed the Brenner at midday of the second day and everyone stood up, but no one said a word. The thought of the return journey stuck in my heart and I cruelly pictured to myself the inhuman joy of that other journey with doors open no one wanting to flee, and the first Italian named. And I looked around and wondered how many among that poor human dust would be struck by fate. Among the 45 people in my wagon, only four saw their homes again, and it was by far the most fortunate wagon. We suffered from thirst and cold. At every stop we clamoured for water or even a handful of snow, but we were rarely heard. The soldiers of the escort drove off anybody who tried to approach the convoy. Two young mothers nursing their children groaned night and day begging for water. Our state of nervous tension made the hunger, exhaustion and lack of sleep seem less of a torment. But the hours of darkness were nightmares without end. There are few men who know how to go to their deaths with dignity. 
and often they are not those whom one would expect. Few know how to remain silent and respect the silence of others. Our restless sleep was often interrupted by noisy and futile disputes, by curses, by kicks and blows, blindly delivered to ward off some encroaching and inevitable contact. Then someone would light a candle, and its mournful flicker would reveal an obscure agitation, a human mass extended across the floor, confused and continuous, sluggish and aching, rising here and there in sudden convulsions, and immediately collapsing again in exhaustion. Through the slit, known and unknown names of Austrian cities, Salzburg, Vienna, then Czech, finally Polish names. On the evening of the fourth day, the cold became intense. The train ran through interminable black pine forests, climbing perceptibly. The snow was high. It must have been a branch line as the stations were small and almost deserted. During the halts, no one tried anymore to communicate with the outside world. We felt ourselves by now on the other side. There was a long halt in open country. The train started up with extreme slowness, and the convoy stopped for the last time in the dead of night, in the middle of a dark, silent plain. On both sides of the track, rows of red and white lights appeared as far as the eye could see. But there was none of that confusion of sounds which betrays inhabited places, even from a distance. By the wretched light of the last candle, with the rhythm of the wheels, with every human sound now silenced, we awaited what was to happen. Next to me, crushed against me for the whole journey, there had been a woman. We had known each other for many years, and the misfortune had struck us together, but we knew little of each other. Now, in the hour of decision, we said to each other things that are never said among the living. We said farewell, and it was short. Everybody said farewell to life through his neighbor. We had no more fear. The climax came suddenly. The door opened with a crash, and the dark echoed with outlandish orders in that curt, barbaric barking of Germans in command which seems to give vent to a millennial anger. A vast platform appeared before us, lit up by reflectors. A little beyond it, a row of lorries. Then everything was silent again. Someone translated. We had to climb down with our luggage and deposit it alongside the train. In a moment, the platform was swarming with shadows. But we were afraid to break that silence. Everyone busied himself with his luggage, searched for someone else, called to somebody, but timidly, in a whisper. A dozen SS men stood around, legs akimbo with an indifferent air. At a certain moment, they moved among us, and in a subdued tone of voice, with faces of stone, began to interrogate us rapidly, one by one, in bad Italian. They did not interrogate everybody, only a few. How old? Healthy or ill? And on the basis of the reply, they pointed in two different directions. Everything was as silent as an aquarium, or as in certain dream sequences. We had expected something more apocalyptic. They seemed simple police agents. It was disconcerting and disarming. 
Someone dared to ask for his luggage. They replied, luggage afterwards. Someone else did not want to leave his wife. They said, together again afterwards. Many mothers did not want to be separated from their children. They said, good, good, stay with child. They behaved with the calm assurance of people doing their normal duty of every day. But Renzo stayed an instant too long to say goodbye to Francesca, his fiancée, and with a single blow they knocked him to the ground. It was their everyday duty. In less than ten minutes, all the fit men had been collected together in a group. What happened to the others, to the women, to the children, to the old men? We could establish neither then nor later. The night swallowed them up, purely and simply. Today, however, we know that in that rapid and summary choice, each one of us had been judged capable or not of working usefully for the Reich. We know that of our convoy, no more than 96 men and 29 women entered the respective camps of Monowitz, Buna, and Birkenau, and that of all the others, more than 500 in number, not one was living two days later. We also know that not even this tenuous principle of discrimination between fit and unfit was always followed, and that later, the simpler method was often adopted of merely opening both the doors of the wagon without warning or instructions to the new arrivals. Those who by chance climbed down on one side of the convoy entered the camp, the others went to the gas chamber. This is the reason why three-year-old Emilia died. The historical necessity of killing the children of Jews was self-demonstrative to the Germans. Emilia, daughter of Aldo Levi of Milan, was a curious, ambitious, cheerful, intelligent child. Her parents had succeeded in washing her during the journey in the packed car in a tub with tepid water, which the degenerate German engineer had allowed them to draw from the engine that was dragging us all to death. Thus, in an instant, our women, our parents, our children disappeared. We saw them for a short while as an obscure mass at the other end of the platform. Then we saw nothing more. Instead, two groups of strange individuals emerged into the light of the lamps. They walked in squads, in rows of three, with an odd embarrassed step, head dangling in front, arms rigid. On their heads they wore comic berets and were all dressed in long striped overcoats, which even by night and from a distance looked filthy and in rags. They walked in a large circle around us, never drawing near, and in silence began to busy themselves with our luggage and to climb in and out of the empty wagons. We looked at each other without a word. It was all incomprehensible and mad. But one thing we had understood, this was the metamorphosis that awaited us. Tomorrow, we would be like them. Without knowing how, I found myself loaded onto a lorry with 30 others. The lorry sped into the night at full speed. It was covered and we could not see outside. But by the shaking, we could tell that the road had many curves and bumps. Are we unguarded? Throw ourselves down. It is too late, too late. 
we are all down. In any case, we are soon aware that we are not without guard. He is a strange guard, a German soldier bristling with arms. We do not see him because of the thick darkness, but we feel the hard contact every time that a lurch of the lorry throws us all in a heap. At a certain point, he switches on a pocket torch, and instead of shouting threats of damnation at us, he asks us courteously, one by one, in German and in pidgin language, if we have any money or watches to give him, seeing that they will not be useful to us anymore. This is no order, no regulation. It's obvious that it's a small private initiative of our care-on. The matter stirs us to anger and laughter and brings relief. The journey did not last more than 20 minutes. Then the lorry stopped and we saw a large door and above it a sign, brightly illuminated. Its memory still strikes me in my dreams. Arbeit macht frei. Work gives freedom. We climb down, they make us enter an enormous empty room that is poorly heated. We have a terrible thirst. The weak gurgle of the water and the radiators makes us ferocious. We've had nothing to drink for four days. But there is also a tap, and above it a card which says that it is forbidden to drink as the water is dirty. Nonsense. It seems obvious this card is a joke. They know that we are dying of thirst, and they put us in a room, and there's a tap, and Wasser trinken verboten? I drink and I incite my companions to do likewise, but I have to spit it out. The water is tepid and sweetish with the smell of a swamp. This is hell. Today, in our times, hell must be like this. A huge, empty room. We are tired, standing on our feet with a tap which drips while we cannot drink the water, and we wait for something which will certainly be terrible. And nothing happens, nothing continues to happen. What can one think about? One cannot think anymore. It's like being already dead. Someone sits on the ground. The time passes, drop by drop. We are not dead. The door is opened, and an SS man enters smoking. He looks at us slowly and asks, Wer kann Deutsch? And one of us whom I've never seen, named Flesch, moves forward. He will be our interpreter. The SS man makes a long, calm speech, and the interpreter translates. We have to form rows of five with intervals of two yards between man and man. Then we have to undress and make bundle of the clothes in a special manner. The woolen garments on one side and all the rest on the other. We must take off our shoes, but we must pay great attention that they're not stolen. Stolen? By whom? 
Why should our shoes be stolen? And what about our documents, the few things we have in our pockets, our watches? We all look at the interpreter, and the interpreter asks the German, and the German smokes and looks at him through and through as if he were transparent, as if no one had spoken. Now another German comes and tells us to put the shoes in a certain corner. And we put them there. Because now it is all over. And we feel outside this world. And the only thing is to obey. Someone comes with a broom and sweeps away all the shoes outside the door in a heap. He's crazy. He's mixing all the shoes up, all of them together, 96 pairs. They'll all be unmatched. And the outside door opens, a freezing wind enters, and we are standing naked, and we cover ourselves up with our arms. The wind blows and slams the door. The German reopens it and stands watching with interest how we writhe to hide the wind, one behind the other. And then the German leaves, and he closes it. Another second act begins. Four men with razors, soap brushes, and clippers, they burst in. They have trousers and jackets with stripes, with a number sewn on the front. Perhaps they are the same sort as those others of this evening. Is it this evening or yesterday evening? But these are robust and flourishing. We ask many questions, but they catch hold of us, and in a moment we find ourselves shaved and sheared. What comic faces we have without hair. The four speak a language which does not seem of this world. It's certainly not German, for I understand a little German. And finally, another door is opened. And here we are, locked in, naked, sheared, and standing with our feet in water. It's a shower room. And we're alone. Slowly, the astonishment dissolves, and we start to speak. Everyone asks questions, and no one answers. If we are naked in a shower room, it means that we will have a shower. If we have a shower, it's because they're not going to kill us. Yet. But then why? Why do they keep us standing and give us nothing to drink while nobody explains anything and we have no shoes or clothes but we're all naked and we have our feet in the water and we've been traveling five days and we cannot even sit down and, and our women. Mr. Levy asks me if I think that our women are like us at this moment and where they are and if we'll be able to see them again. And I say yes, because he's married and he has a daughter. Yes, certainly we will see them again, I say. But by now, my belief is that all this is a game to mock and sneer at us. Clearly, they will kill us. Whoever thinks he's going to live is mad. It means that he swallowed the bait, but I have not. I have understood that it will soon all be over. 
perhaps in this very room, when they get bored of seeing us naked, dancing from foot to foot, and trying every now and again to sit down on the floor. But there are two inches of cold water, and we cannot sit down. We walk up and down without sense. And, and we talk. Everybody talks to everybody else. We make a great noise. The door opens, and the German enters. It's the officer from before. He speaks briefly, and the interpreter translates. The officer says, you must be quiet, because this is not a rabbinical school. One can see the words which are not his, the bad words, twist in his mouth as they come out as if he was spitting out a foul taste. The German goes and we remain silent, although we're a little ashamed of our silence. It's still night, and we wonder if the day will ever come. The door opens again, and someone else, dressed in stripes this time, comes in. He's different from the others. He's older, with glasses, a more civilized face, and much less robust. He speaks to us in Italian. By now, we're tired of being amazed. We seem to be watching some kind of mad play, one of those plays in which the witches, the Holy Spirit, and the devil appear. He speaks Italian badly with a strong foreign accent. He makes a long speech. It's, it's very polite, and he tries to answer all our questions. We are at Monowitz, he says, near Auschwitz, in Upper Silesia, a region inhabited by both Poles and Germans. This camp is a work camp. In German, one says Arbeitslager, and all the prisoners, there are about 10,000, work in a factory which produces a type of rubber called buna, so that the camp itself is called buna. We will be given shoes and clothes, he says. No, no, not our own. Other shoes, other clothes, like his. We are naked now because we are waiting for the shower, he says, and disinfection which will take place immediately after the Revali, because one cannot enter the camp without being disinfected. Certainly, yes, there will be work to do. Everyone must work here, but there is work and work. He, for example, acts as a doctor. He is a Hungarian doctor who studied in Italy, and he is the dentist of the lager. He's been in the lager for four and a half years. No, not in this one. Buna has only been open for a year and a half. But we can see that he is still quite well. He's not very thin. Why is he in the lager? Is he Jewish like us? No, he says simply. I am a criminal. And we ask him many questions. He laughs. He replies to some and not to others. And it's clear that he is avoiding certain subjects. He does not speak of the women. 
He says, yes, they are well, that we will see them again soon, but he does not say how or where. We beg him to find us something to drink, but he says that he cannot. He's come to see us secretly against SS orders as we still have to be disinfected and that he must leave at once. He has come here because he has a liking for Italians and because, he says, he has a little heart. We ask him, are there other Italians in the camp? And he says there are some, a few, but he does not know how many. And at once he changes the subject. Meanwhile, a, a bell rang, and immediately he hurried off. And he left us stunned and disconcerted. Some feel refreshed, but I do not. I still think that this dentist, even this dentist, this incomprehensible person, wanted to amuse himself at our expense, and I do not want to believe a word of what he said. At the sound of the bell, we can hear the still, dark camp waking up. Unexpectedly, water gushes out, boiling from the showers above. Five minutes of bliss, but immediately after, four men, perhaps, perhaps they are the barbers. They burst in, yelling and shoving, and drive us out, wet and steaming, into the adjoining room, which is freezing. Here, other shouting people throw at us unrecognizable rags and thrust into our hands a pair of broken-down boots with wooden soles. We have no time to understand. We already find ourselves in the open, in the blue and icy snow of dawn. We're barefoot and naked, with all of our clothing in our hands, with a hundred yards to run to the next hut. And there... We are finally allowed to get dressed. When we finish dressing, everyone remains in his own corner. And we dare not lift our eyes to look at one another. There's nowhere to look in a mirror, but our appearance stands in front of us, reflected in a hundred livid faces, in a hundred miserable and sordid puppets. We are transformed into the phantoms glimpsed yesterday evening. And then, for the first time, we became aware that our language lacks words to express this offense. The demolition of a man. In a moment, with almost prophetic intuition, the reality was revealed to us. We had reached the bottom. It's not possible to sink lower than this. No human condition is more miserable than this, nor could it be conceivably so. Nothing belongs to us anymore. They've taken away our clothes, our shoes, even our hair. If we speak, they will not listen to us, and if they listen, they will not understand. They will even take away our name, and if we want to keep it, we'll have to find ourselves the strength to do so, to manage somehow so that behind the name, something of us, of us as we were, still remains. We know that we will have difficulty in being understood, and this is as it should be. 
But consider what value, what meaning is enclosed in even the smallest of our daily habits, in the hundred possessions which even the poorest beggar owns, a handkerchief, an old letter, the photo of a cherished person. These things are part of us, almost like limbs of our body, not, it's not, not conceivable that we can be deprived of these things in our world, for we immediately find others to substitute for the old ones, other objects which are ours in their personification and evocation of our memories. But imagine now a man who is deprived of everyone he loves and at the same time of his house, his habits, his clothes, in short of everything he possesses. He will be a hollow man, reduced to suffering and needs, forgetful of dignity and restraint, for he who loses all often easily loses himself. He will be a man whose life or death can be lightly decided with no sense of human affinity. In the most fortunate of cases, on the basis of pure judgment of utility. It is in this way that one can understand the double sense of the term extermination camp. And it is now clear that well, what we seek to express with the phrase, to lie on the bottom. Häftling, a prisoner. I have learned that I am Häftling. My number is 174517. We've been baptized. We will carry this tattoo on our left arm until we die. The operation was slightly painful and extraordinarily rapid. They placed us all in a row, and one by one, according to the alphabetical order of our names, we filed past a skillful official, armed with a sort of pointed tool with a very short needle. And it seems that this is the real, true initiation. Only by showing one's number can one get bread or soup. Several days passed, and not a few cuffs and punches, before we became used to showing our number promptly enough not to disorder the daily operation of food distribution. Weeks and months were needed to learn its sound in the German language. And for many days, while the habits of freedom still led me to look for time on my wristwatch, my new name ironically appeared. A number, tattooed in bluish characters under the skin. In fact, the whole process of introduction to what was for us a new order took place in a grotesque and sarcastic manner. When the tattooing operation was finished, they shut us in a vacant hut. The bunks are made, but we are severely forbidden to touch or sit on them. So... We wander around aimlessly for half the day in the limited space available, still tormented by the parching thirst from the journey. And then, 
The door opens, and a boy in a striped suit comes in, with a fairly civilized air. He's small and thin and blonde. He speaks French, and we throng around him with a flood of questions which till now he had, we'd asked each other in vain. But he does not speak willingly. No one here speaks willingly. We're new. We have nothing, and we know nothing. Why waste time on us? He reluctantly explains to us that all the others are out at work and they'll come back in the evening. He has come out of the infirmary this morning and is exempt from work for just today. And I asked this boy, with an ingenuousness that only a few days later seems already incredible to me, if at least they would give us back our toothbrushes. And he did not laugh. But with his face animated by fierce contempt, he threw at me, Vous n'êtes pas à la maison. And this is the refrain that we hear repeated by everyone. You are not at home. This is not a sanatorium. The only exit is by way of the chimney. And what did it mean? What did it mean? Soon we were all to learn what it meant. Hour after hour, the first long day of limbo draws to its end. And while the sun sets in a tumult of fierce, blood-red clouds, they finally make us come out of the hut. Will they give us something to drink? No. They place us in line again. They lead us to a huge square which takes up the center of the camp, and they arrange us meticulously in squads. And then nothing happens for another hour. It seems we're waiting for someone. And a band begins to play next to the entrance of the camp. It plays Rosamunda, the well-known sentimental song. so strange to us that we look sniggering at each other. We feel a shadow of relief even. Perhaps all these ceremonies are nothing but a colossal farce in Teutonic taste. But the band on finishing Rosamunda continue to play other marches, one after another, and suddenly, suddenly the squads of our comrades appear. Returning from work, they walk in columns of five with a strange unnatural hard gait, like stiff puppets made of jointless bones, but they walk scrupulously in time to the band. And they also arrange themselves, like us, in this huge square according to a precise order. When the last squad is returned, they count and recount us for over an hour. 
Long checks are made, which all seem to go to a man dressed in stripes, who accounts for them to a group of SS men in full battle dress. And finally, it's dark by now, but the camp is brightly lit by headlamps and reflectors. One hears the shout, up, spear up! At which all the squads break up in a confused and turbulent movement. They no longer walk stiffly and directly as before, but each one drags himself along with an obvious effort. And I see that all of them carry in their hand or attached to their belt a steel bowl as large as a basin. We new arrivals also wander among the crowd, searching for a voice, a friendly face or a guide. And against the wooden wall of the hut, Two boys are seated on the ground. They seem very young, 16 years old at the outside, both with their face and hands dirty with soot. And one of the two, as we're passing by, calls me and asks me in German some questions which I do not understand. Then he asks where I come from. Italian, I reply. I want to ask him many things, but my German vocabulary is very limited. Are you a Jew? I ask him. Yes, Polish Jew. How long have you been in the lager? Three years. And he lifts up three fingers. So he must have been a child when he entered, I think, with horror. On the other hand, this means that at least some do manage to live here. What is your work? Schlosser, the boy replies. I, I don't understand. Eisen, Feuer, he insists, and makes a play with his hands of someone beating with a hammer on an anvil. So he's an ironsmith. Uh, ich chemiker, I state. And he nods earnestly with his head. Chemiker, gut. But all this has to do with the distant future. What torments me at this moment is my thirst. Drink. Water. We know water, I tell him. And the boy looks at me with a serious face, almost severe, and states clearly, Do not drink water, comrade. And then other words I just don't understand. Warum? Geschwollen, he replies cryptically, and I shake my head, having not understood. Swollen, he makes me understand, blowing out his cheeks and sketching with his hands a monstrous tumefaction of the face and belly. Warten bis heute Abend. Wait until this evening. I translate word by word. And then the boy says, Ich schlomme, du? And I tell him my name, and he asks me, Where? Your mother. Uh, in Italy, Shlomo is amazed. A Jew in Italy? Yes, I explain as best I can. Uh, she's hidden. Um, no one knows. Run away. Doesn't speak. No one can see her. And now he's understood and he gets up. He approaches me and he timidly 
embraces me. The adventure's over, and I feel filled with a serene sadness that is almost joy. I've never seen Schlomer since, but I have never forgotten his serious and gentle face, that face of a child who welcomed me on the threshold of the house of the dead. We have a great number of things to learn, but we've learned many already. We have a certain idea of the topography of the lager. Our lager is a square of about 600 yards in length, surrounded by two fences of barbed wire, the inner fence carrying a high-voltage current. It consists of 60 wooden huts, which are called blocks, 10 of which are in construction. In addition, there is a body of the kitchens, which are in brick. There's an experimental farm run by a detachment of privileged Hefflinger. The huts with the showers and the latrines, each for each group of six or eight blocks. And besides these, certain blocks are reserved for specific purposes. First of all, a group of eight blocks at the extreme eastern end of the camp form the infirmary and the clinic. And then there is block 24, which is the Kreitze block, reserved for infectious skin diseases. There's block 7, which no ordinary Hefling has ever entered, reserved for the prominence, that is the aristocracy, the internees holding the highest posts. Block 47, reserved for the Reichsdeutsche, the Aryan Germans, politicals or criminals. Block 49, for the Kapos alone. Block 12, half of which, for use of the Reichsdeutsche and the Kapos, serves as a canteen. And that is a distribution center for tobacco, insect powder, and occasionally other articles. Block 37, which formed the quartermaster's office and the office for work. And finally, Block 29, which always has its windows closed as it is the Frauenblock, the camp brothel, served by Polish Heftling girls and reserved for the Reichsdeutsche. The ordinary living blocks are divided into two parts. In one Tagesraum lives the head of the hut with his friends. There's a long table, seats, benches, and on all sides a heap of strange objects in bright colors, photographs, cuttings from magazines, sketches, imitation flowers, ornaments. On the walls there are great sayings, proverbs, and rhymes in praise of order, discipline, and hygiene. And in one corner, there's a shelf with the tools of the bloc frisor, the official barber. There's the ladles to distribute the soup, two rubber truncheons, one solid and one hollow, to enforce discipline should the proverbs prove insufficient. The other part is the dormitory. There are only 148 bunks on three levels, they're fitted close to each other like the cells of a beehive, and they are divided by three corridors so as to utilize without wastage all the space in this room up to the roof. And here, all the ordinary Hefflinger live, about 200 to 250 per hut. Consequently, there are two men in most of the bunks, which are portable planks of wood, each covered by a thin straw sack and two blankets. The corridors are so narrow that two people can barely pass together. 
The total area of the floor is so small that the inhabitants of the same block cannot all stay there at the same time unless half are lying on their bunks. Hence, the prohibition to enter a block to which one does not belong. In the middle of the lager is Roll Call Square, enormous, where we collect in the morning to form the work squads and in the evening to be counted. Facing the Roll Call Square, there's a bed of grass and it's carefully mown where the gallows are erected when necessary. We soon learn that the guests of the lager are divided into three categories, the criminals, the politicals, and the Jews. And all are clothed in stripes, all are Heftlinger, but the criminals wear a green triangle next to the number sewn on their jacket. The politicals wear a red triangle, and the Jews, who form the large majority, wear the Jewish star in red and yellow. SS men exist, but they're very few and outside of the camp, and they're seen relatively infrequently. Our effective masters in practice are the green triangles who have a free hand over us, as well as those of the other two categories who are ready to help them, and they're not few. And we have learned other things more or less quickly. According to our intelligence, We've learned to reply, Yavol, never to ask questions, always to pretend to understand. We've learned the value of food, and now we also diligently scrape the bottom of the bowl after the ration, and we hold it under our chins when we eat the bread, so as not to lose the crumbs. We too know that it is not the same thing to be given a ladle full of soup from the top or from the bottom of the vat, and we are already able to judge according to the capacity of the various vats what is the most suitable place to try and reach into the queue when we line up. We have learned that everything is useful. The wire to tie up our shoes, the rags to wrap around our feet, waste paper to illegally pad out our jacket against the cold. We have learned, on the other hand, that everything can be stolen. In fact, it is automatically stolen as soon as one's attention is relaxed. And to avoid this, we have to learn the art of sleeping with our head on a bundle made up of our jacket and containing all our belongings from the bowl to the shoes. We already know in good part the rules of this camp, which are incredibly complicated. The prohibitions are innumerable. Not to approach nearer to the barbed wire than two yards not to sleep with one's jacket or without one's pants or with one's cap on one's head, not to use certain washrooms or latrines which are nur für Kapos, nur für Reichsdeutsche, not to go for the shower on the prescribed day or not to go there on the day not prescribed, to leave the hut with one's jacket unbuttoned or with the collar raised, not to carry paper or straw under one's clothes against the cold, not to wash, except when stripped to the waist. And all these rites had to be carried out. They were infinite and senseless. Every morning, one had to make the bed perfectly flat and smooth. 
One had to smear one's muddy and repellent wooden shoes with the appropriate machine grease, scrape the mud stains off one's clothes, paint, grease, and rust stains were permitted. In the evening, one had to undergo the control for lice and the control of washing one's feet. On Saturdays, one had to have one's beard and hair shaved, mend or have mended one's rags. On Sundays, undergo the general control for skin diseases and the control of buttons on one's jacket, which had to be five. In addition, there were innumerable circumstances, normally irrelevant, which here become problems. When one's nails grow long, they have to be shortened, which can only be done with one's teeth. For the toenails, the friction of the shoes is sufficient. If a button comes off, one has to tie it on with a piece of wire. If one goes to the latrine or the washroom, everything has to be carried along with one, always and everywhere. And while one washes one's face, the bundle of clothes has to be tightly held between one's knees. In any other manner, it will be stolen. In a second. If a shoe hurts, one has to go in the evening to the ceremony of the changing of the shoes. And this, it tests the skill of the individual who, in the middle of an incredible crowd, has to be able to choose at an eye's glance one, not a pair, one shoe which fits him. Because once the choice is made, there can be no second chance. And do not think that shoes form a factor of secondary importance in the life of this lager. Death begins with shoes. For most of us, they show themselves to be instruments of torture, which after a few hours of marching cause painful sores which become fatally infected. Whoever has them is forced to walk as if he were dragging a convict's chain. And this explains the strange gait of the army which returns every evening on parade. He arrives last everywhere, and everywhere he receives blows. He cannot escape if they run after him. His feet swell, and the more they swell, the more the friction with the wood and the cloth of the shoes becomes insupportable. And then only the hospital is left. But to enter the hospital with a diagnosis of dicke Fuße, swollen feet, it's extremely dangerous. Because it is well known to all, and especially to the SS, that here there is no cure for that complaint. And in all this, we've not yet mentioned the work, which in turn is a Gordian knot of laws, taboos, and problems. We all work except those who are ill. To be recognized as ill implies in itself an important equipment of knowledge and experience. Every morning, we leave the camp in squads for Buna. Every evening, in squads, we return. And as regards the work, we are divided into about 200 commandos, each of which consists of between 15 and 150 men and is commanded by a capo. There are good and bad commandos. For the most part, they're used as transport, and the work is quite hard, especially in the winter, if for no other reason, merely because it always takes place in the open. 
And there are also skilled commandos. Electricians, smiths, bricklayers, welders, mechanics, concrete layers, etc. And each attached to a certain workshop or department of the Buna. And depending more directly on civilian foremen, mostly German and Polish. And this naturally only applies to the hours of work. For the rest of the day, the skilled workers, and there are no more than three or four hundred in all, receive no different treatment from the ordinary workers. The hours of work vary with the season. All hours of light are working hours. So that from a minimum winter working day of 8 till 12 a.m. and 12.30 to 4 p.m., one rises to a maximum summer time work period of 6.30 to 12 a.m. and 1 to 6 p.m. And under no excuse are the Heftlinge allowed to be at work during the hours of darkness when there is thick fog. But they work regularly even if it rains or snows or, as occurs quite frequently, if the fierce wind of the Carpathians blows. And the reason being that the darkness or the fog might provide opportunities to escape. One Sunday in every two is a regular working day. On the so-called holiday Sundays, instead of working at Buna, one works normally on the upkeep of the lager, so that the days of real rest are extremely rare. As such will be our life. According to the established rhythm, ausrucken and einrucken, go out and come in. Work, sleep, and eat. Fall ill, get better, or die. So here I am then, on the bottom. One learns quickly enough to wipe out the past and the future when one is forced to. <laughs> A fortnight after my arrival, I already had the prescribed hunger, that chronic hunger unknown to free men, which makes one dream at night, and it settles in all the limbs of one's body. I've already learned not to let myself be robbed, and in fact, if I find a spoon lying around, a piece of string, a button which I can acquire without danger of punishment, I pocket them, and I consider them mine by full right. On the back of my feet, I already have those numb sores that will not heal. I push wagons, I work with a shovel, I turn rotten in the rain, I shiver in the wind, and already my own body is no longer mine. My belly is swollen, my limbs emaciated, my face is thick in the morning, hollow in the evening. Some of us have yellow skin, others gray. When we do not meet for a few days, we hardly recognize each other. We Italians had decided to meet every Sunday in a corner of the lager, but we stopped it at once because it was too sad to count our numbers and find fewer each time, and to see each other ever more deformed and more squalid. 
And it was, it was so tiring to walk those few steps and then meeting each other to remember and to think. It was better not to think. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. After the first day of capricious transfer from hut to hut and from commando to commando, I'm assigned to Block 30 late one evening and shown a bunk in which Diana is already sleeping. Diana wakes up and although exhausted, makes room for me and receives me hospitably. I am not sleepy. Or more accurately, my sleepiness is masked by a state of tension and anxiety of which I have not yet managed to rid myself. And so I talk and talk. I have too many things to ask. I am hungry. And when will they distribute the soup tomorrow? And will I be able to eat it without a spoon? And where will I be able to find one? And where will they send me to work? Diana knows no more than I and replies with other questions. But from far above and below, from nearby and from far away, from all corners of the now dark hut, sleepy and angry voices shout at me, Rue, Rue. 
I understand that they're ordering me to be quiet, but the word is new to me. And since I do not know its meaning and implications, my inquietude increases. So I give up asking questions and soon slip into a bitter and tense sleep. But it is not rest. I feel myself threatened, besieged. At every moment, I'm ready to draw myself into a spasm of defense. I dream, and I seem to sleep on a road, on a bridge, across a door through which many people are passing. And now, oh, so early, the rivelle sounds, the entire hut shakes to its foundations. The lights are put on. Everyone near me bustles around in a sudden frantic activity. They shake the blankets, raising clouds of fetid dust. They dress with feverish hurry. They run outside into the freezing air, half-dressed. They rush headlong towards the latrines and washrooms. Some bestially urinate while they run to save time. Because within five minutes begins the distribution of bread. Of bread, brot, broid, chlep, painlechem, kenyir, of the holy gray slab which seems gigantic in your neighbor's hand and in your own hand so small as to make you cry. Bread is also our only money. In the few minutes which elapse between its distribution and consumption, the block resounds with claims, quarrels, and scuffles. It is the creditors of yesterday who are claiming payment in the brief moment in which the debtor is solvent. After which, a relative quiet begins, and many take advantage to go to the latrines, again to smoke half a cigarette, or to the washroom to wash themselves properly. The washroom is far from attractive. It is badly lighted, full of drafts, with a brick floor covered by layer of mud. The water is not drinkable. It has a revolting smell and often fails for many hours. The walls are covered by curious didactic frescoes. For example, there is the good halfling portrayed stip, stripped to the waist, about to diligently soap his sheared and rosy cranium, and the bad halfling with a strong Semitic nose and a greenish color, bundled up in his ostentatiously stained clothes with a berry on his head, who cautiously dips a finger into the water of the wash basin. Under the first, it is written, 
so bisdu rain. Like this, you are clean. And under a second, so gaisdu ein. Like this, you come to the bad end. And lower down in doubtful French, but in Gothic script. La propreté, c'est la santé. I must confess it, after only one week of prison, the instinct for cleanliness disappeared in me. I wander aimlessly around the washroom when I suddenly see Steinloff, my friend, aged almost 50, with new torso, scrub his neck and shoulders with little success. He has no soap, but great energy. Steinloff sees me and greets me and without preamble asks me severely why I do not wash. Why should I wash? Would I be better off than I am? Would I please someone more? Would I live a day, an hour longer? I would probably live a shorter time because to wash is an effort, a waste of energy and warmth. Does not Steinloff know that? After half an hour, with the Cossacks, every difference between him and me will have disappeared. The more I think about it, the more washings one face in our condition seems a stupid feat, even frivolous a mechanical habit, or worse, a dismal repetition of an extinct right. We will all die. We are all about to die. If they give me 10 minutes between the rebel and work, I want to dedicate them to something else, to draw into myself, to weigh up things, or merely to look at the sky and think that I'm looking at it perhaps for the last time, or even to let myself live, to indulge myself in the luxury of an idle moment. But Steinloff interrupts me. He has finished washing and is now drying himself with his cloth jacket, which he was holding before wrapped up before, between his knees and which he will soon put on. And without interrupting the operation, he administers me a complete lesson. It grieves me now that I have forgotten his plain, outspoken words, the words of an ex-sergeant Steinloff of the Austro-Hungarian Army Iron Cross of the 1418 war. It grieves me because it means that I have to translate his uncertain Italian and his quiet manner of speaking of a good soldier into my language, of an incredulous man. 
but this was the sense, not forgotten either then or later, that precisely because the lager was a great machine to reduce us to beasts, we must not become beasts. That even in this place, one can survive, and therefore, one must want to survive, to tell the story, to bear witness, and that to survive, we must force ourselves to save at least the skeleton, the scaffolding, the form of civilization. We are slaves, deprived of every right, exposed to every insult, condemned to certain death, but we still possess one power, and we must defend it with all our strength, for it is the last, the power to refuse our consent. So we must certainly wash our faces without soap, in dirty water, and dry ourselves on our jackets. We must polish our shoes, not because the regulation states it, but for dignity and propriety. We must walk erect without dragging our feet, not in homage of the Prussian discipline, but to remain alive, not to begin to die. These things Steinloff, a man of goodwill, told me. Strange things to my unaccustomed ear, understood and accepted only in part, and softened by an easier, more flexible, and blander doctrine, which for centuries had found its dwelling place on the other side of the Alps, according to which, among other things, nothing is of greater vanity than to force oneself to swallow whole a moral system elaborated by others under another sky. No, the wisdom and virtue of Steinloff, certainly good for him, is not enough for me. In the face of this complicated world, my ideas of damnation are confused. Is it really necessary to, to elaborate a system and put it into practice? Or would it not be better to acknowledge one's lack of system? Thank you for listening to this episode, part of a special series brought to you in collaboration with London's South Bank Centre. Music was performed by Raphael Valfish, Tom O'Keller, Robert Smizen, Simon Valfish and Leda Valizova under the direction of Tom O'Keller. Go to the-tls.co.uk to find all five episodes in this series and go to iTunes, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts to find Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the TLS's regular podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.